All right, everybody. Well, if you have a Bible, um, you want to go ahead and be to there first, you think, to Second Thessalonians? Yeah, that's where I'm, I was. Why, why don't you open up to Second Thessalonians chapter 1? Is that right, Greg? Yeah, chapter 1 and 2. And as you are turning to Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, I'm going to give an attempt here to give the different positions. Again, we are discussing the millennium and um, the thousand-year reign of Christ. I'll just give quickly the four major positions on this that people debate, uh, and I don't think the debate is going to end until we reach the end of the millennium, whenever that exactly comes. But the four views are basically this. So the, the most popular view in the Southern Baptist world is uh, dispensational, pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism. It's a mouthful, isn't it, Papa Fred? That's a lot. We need an acronym. We need an acronym for that. I don't know what that would spell. And uh, the idea is that Jesus, of course, comes back with an invisible rapture, snatches all believers out of the world. There's seven years of tribulation. Then Jesus comes back visibly. He uh, judges the world. He then ushers in a thousand-year reign. And according to the dispensational view, there's a strong separation between ethnic Jews and the church. Do you remember this? The strong separation between those two groups. And so there's going to be a special rule and reign for ethnic Jews in the millennium that Gentiles are not fully a part of in the same way. So this strong distinction between Israel and the church is crucial. At the end of the thousand-year reign, Jesus then, uh, there's, there's a final resurrection, absolute final judgment, and then there's a new creation, the new heavens and new earth. That's the most popular view around. The, the other view, and I, this is where it gets a little tricky, there's two different versions of premillennialism, okay? The other view is called historic premillennialism, and it's actually quite different because you don't, you're, you're not dispensational if you're historic premill, okay? So just to give you a sampling, like just to give names here, so historic premill would be like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, uh, help me here. Carson. Uh, Carson. Don Carson is historic pre-mill. James Hamilton. James Hamilton is historic pre-mill. So a lot of really solid guys that we like a lot are historic pre-mill. They reject dispensationalism. They reject the pre-tribulation rapture, but they still believe that the millennium is most naturally read in Revelation as being a future event that takes place after Christ returns. And I, I you know, I will tell you, for me personally, Al Mill is my number one choice. My second choice is historic pre-mill. So if I, if I had to choose, I think there's a 90% chance one of those is right, and I cer- certainly prefer Amil. But it's very hard to be 100% sure on some of these things because there's good arguments in both directions. I'm pretty sure dispensational pre-mill is not correct, and I'm pretty sure post-mill is not correct, just my personal opinion here. But uh, so h- historic pre-mill, uh, and then the next view is amillennialism, which is what we're arguing for, which is that the church age is when the millennium happens, but the millennium is happening not on earth, but where? In heaven. It's in heaven. It's where deceased saints reign with Christ after they are, are killed or after they endure to death in this world. And they reign with Christ during that thousand-year period. And at the end of the thousand years, Jesus comes back and judges the world, raises his dead, and there is no future millennium. The millennium is over when Christ returns, and there's just a new creation, a new heavens and new earth. The next few that we plan to discuss next week, and I'll, I, I, you, you want to be humble in how you say things, but I just don't think this view is correct. The next view is post-millennialism. Uh, Doug Wilson is probably one of the most uh, well-known proponents of Doug, of, 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 I almost called it Doug millennialism, I think there, uh, which is about what it is right now. Uh, his, his little group up in Moscow, Idaho, like all of them are post-mill, and that's about it right now. There's not a lot. The Puritans, there are a lot of uh, post-mill in the Puritan era. Jonathan Edwards, was strongly post-millennial, if, you're, if you want to know. But we, we humbly disagree with, uh, with Jonathan Edwards on that. The, the post-millennial view says that there is no, um, or excuse me, that Jesus comes back after the millennium, which Amil, we would agree, he comes back after the millennium. But the difference is Amil thinks the millennium is happening where? In heaven. Post-mill thinks the millennium is happening on earth, and it may have already started. Most post-mill would say it happens throughout the entire church age. The millennium is a symbolic number for the church age. And again, we agree with that, but what they say is Christ's reign is on earth. So post-mill is quite different. What you have here is a from glory to glory perspective of the future. So the idea is not that there are no setbacks, not that there's no apostasy or no false teaching. Of course, that all happens. But the idea is kind of like a, a stock market that's going like this, but over time it's growing. The idea is that God's kingdom will take over planet earth. And again, there's a portion of this that we agree. The part that we agree on is we do believe the gospel will defeat uh, uh, lostness in all nations. So we, there's, there's an optimistic part to what we believe, that the gospel will triumph across the nations, that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be converted. So we, we, that's, we agree with that part, but Post Mill goes a lot further. And it says that culture is going to be 
phenomenally Christianized all across the world in virtually every culture that the world will become practically Christian and that the vast majority of the world's population will become born-again Christians, basically, and that Jesus will basically have the kingdom almost in place right before he comes back. Now, Doug Wilson will say, yes, I still believe that there will be an end-time uh, opponent, like an antichrist-type figure. I don't, I don't think he calls him that, but he, he thinks the man of lawlessness is still a future event. I heard him preach on this not long ago. And he believes that there will be a revolt right before Christ returns, which we agree with, that will, that will kind of undo some of what happened, and then Jesus will come back and judge that final event and usher in the eternal state. Here's why, although our view overlaps with post-mill, because I know I'm using terms that get like what's being said. Amil and Postmill both believe in a millennium. Amil thinks it's in heaven right now. Postmill thinks it's on earth right now. We both believe Jesus comes back after the millennium, but there's a big difference between an earthly millennium right now and a heavenly millennium right now. If postmillennialism is true right now, here's where guys like Doug Wilson just run into, I think, well, I'm not supposed to get into this today. I'm going to get into this next week. Uh, <laughs> I, we'll, we'll save this for later. But I think they run into a lot of insurmountable problems that we'll talk about next Sunday, Lord willing. So uh, all that to say, we're going to focus still today on the premillennial and amillennial positions. Uh, Greg, why don't you hop in here with the second? Th- I got a little carried away. I got, I got right, into post right. a little bit there. Um, can we pray? <clears throat> yes, and then, yes. And then get started. Man, yeah. yes, we do need to pray. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you, uh, Lord, for the opportunity to study it in depth, especially this issue of the thousand-year reign of Christ that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. Um, Lord, uh, we thank you that um, we can compare Scripture with Scripture, and the more we study, the more clear things can be. And Lord, I pray that today would bring further clarity. Uh, Lord, in my heart, Mark's, Fred's, and everybody who, who listens to this, Lord, that we would um, just be faithful to your Word, and we would let your Word Uh, as much as we are able to uh, let your word define what we need to think and believe um, about this thousand-year period. Um, And so, Lord, help us, uh, above all, appreciate the fact that whether we agree with this or not, Lord, we know that in Christ we are guaranteed forgiveness of sins now, eternal life now, and the hope of a resurrection body and a new heavens and a new earth forever in your presence. And we're grateful for that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. I mentioned last week, uh, you know, I want you to go ahead and read a little bit in this. Uh, there's just, it's, it's a, it's, again, it's not one of the major points I'm going to hang my hat on, but some of the, the parallels here are interesting enough to me, and they're significant enough that I think it merits mentioning. So let's start reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'm going to read, it's going to be a little, little bit here. I'm going to read all the way to chapter 2, verse 12, okay? And I'm going to draw attention to a few things that we pick up on in Revelation 19 and 20. So Paul says, verse 5, chapter 1, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you were also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and notice this, this is going to be one of the points, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. Um, Let's move on. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness who is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may re- be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders 
and with all wicked deception for those who were perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, that's a lot to take in very quickly. So keeping that in mind, we think through Revelation chapter 19 and 20, and we think about the return of Christ. Okay, in chapter 19, he's on his white horse. Uh, how does he kill his enemies? The sword that comes out of his mouth. Again, we're not talking about a literal physical sword. Jesus is spitting swords out when he returns. It's referring to his word, the power of his word, so that when he comes and he pronounces judgment, his judgment cannot be contested. It cannot be overthrown. It what he says is exactly what's going to happen to his enemies. And so we get that in chapter 19. And then chapter 20, again, remember we've said, chapter 20 goes back to the beginning of the church age, and we live the whole thing again up to, you know, to the destruction of Satan, which we believe is at the same time of the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. And look at what it says in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 9. It says, They, the nations being led astray by Satan, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But what came down from heaven? Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And so the point of the connection is simply this. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the return of Christ as coming in flaming fire. Okay. Think, think about the significance of Jesus parting the sky, whatever that's going to look like, and coming in vengeance with fire around him. Fire does what? It consumes, okay? We see fire mentioned. This is, again, this is when Jesus comes back uh, his, his, you know, in power and in glory. There's fire there. And it mentions the fire first, actually. And it's not until chapter 2 when it talks about specifically how he kills the lawless one, the Antichrist, that he mentions slay with the breath of his mouth, another way of talking about his word. Okay, Revelation gives us both of those pictures. Chapter 19, the breath of his mouth, the sword from his mouth. Chapter 20, fire coming down from heaven and consuming um, uh, his adversaries. And one other thing too is chapter 20 of Revelation talks about Satan being released to deceive the nations, to gather them together. So this is, that's language of delusion, deception. What happens at the, uh, at the part of chapter 2 in Second Thess Thessalonians that we read. The coming of the lawless one is by what? The activity of Satan. Remember, there's a restraint now, but a time is going to come when Satan won't be restrained and he can do what he wants to do to oppose the gospel and gather the nations to oppose the church. And that's exactly what we see happening in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11. He's going to do all this to deceive the nation. They're, they're perishing. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. God sends them this delusion. And so again, it's, I don't want to hang everything on that, those connections, but I think it is significant. The language of 2 Thessalonians and the language of Revelation 19 and 20, again, talking about the same event, looking at it from slightly different perspectives. Oh, that's a good point. Paul. I, I like the... Uh, the restraining influence, because like you pointed out in Second uh, Thessalonians 2, and you know what is restraining him now that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And First uh, John talks about the Antichrist and the spirit of lawlessness already at work. So. so turn to Revelation 20, if you're not there at the moment. Turn to Revelation 20. And let, let me just again sort of step back and try to, Get, get the broad idea here. For you to personally and for me to come to my personal conviction about how to interpret these, this passage, uh, here's one of the things that we're going to try to look for. At the end of chapter 19, Jesus comes back, like Greg was mentioning, white horse with a sword in his mouth, and he brings judgment on the beast and the false prophet. That's 11 through 21 of chapter 19. Jesus comes back. Uh, I mean, there are some people who dispute this, but I think, it, I think this is clearly referring to Christ's second coming. And then chapter 20 uh, the question is, is the, is the final judgment in chapter 20 that we just read, chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, is that the same or different from the final judgment in chapter 19? Do you see what I'm saying? If the final judgment in 19 is the same as the final judgment in chapter 20, then we have clearly repeating happening, and then we have to be amil or postmill, but amil would be the, the one I would go for. So let me, let me give a couple of points here to argue that the, that the uh, judgment in chapter 20 
is the same as the judgment in chapter 19. Uh, Some things we did not get to mention last time around. So look with me at uh, verse 7 of chapter 20. And when the thousand years are ended, so now we are definitely after the millennium, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Okay, now look at the very middle or toward the end of verse 8. You see how it says, gather them for battle? Um, Gather them for battle. That, okay, just worth knowing this, okay? In the Greek, uh, the word I believe is ton palamon. Okay, that's the word for it. There's a definite article. Ton is the word the. And then palamon is the word battle. The battle. Okay, it's very distinct. That particular phrase, ton palamon, the battle, only occurs three times in the book of Revelation. Okay? So already this specific phrase, the natural understanding would be it's probably likely to be referring to the same battle, but we'll see. So chapter 20, verse 8, it speaks of Gog and Magog, the whole world coming against God's people. The nations are gathered, and they come against God's people for the battle. Ton Palamon, the battle, and then they are judged by fire, and they're destroyed. Okay, everybody on the same page there for chapter 20? Okay, now let's look at chapter 19. The word Ton Palamon, the battle, appears again in chapter, uh, in chapter 19. Look at verse 19. But let's start in verse 17. So the the nations are here. Jesus is coming back on a white horse. 19 verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, uh, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their uh, armies gathered together to do you see make war in the ESV? That is, in Greek, the same. It is ton palamon, the war, or the battle. It's the same exact phrase from chapter 20. I know it's translated a little differently, but it's the same phrase in Greek. They came together for the war, the battle, against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. Okay, now, already here we're seeing this, this epic battle in both chapters is used the same Greek, the battle, the, the war, is used to describe them in both places there is a, there's a judgment from God, and in both places, it looks like absolute victory, where it looks like all his enemies are defeated. Look, look at the end of chapter 19. It looks like everyone's gone who's against him. Look at the verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It sounds like at the end of chapter 19, how many of God's enemies have been destroyed in the battle? 100%, right? Oh. It says all the people fighting were destroyed, and then all the rest well, you know what the rest is? It's the rest. It's everybody else. So everyone who is against Christ, when he returns in the battle, the war, Jesus will defeat them all and they will be destroyed. Well, then in chapter 20, how is it that you have a bunch of nations against God again? Where do those nations come from if this is happening in the future? Now, there's different arguments for how that could happen, but I think a very natural reading of this is to say this is a repeat of the same scene from a different camera angle, and this time the war, the battle, Ton Palamon, is happening all over again, and again, God defeats all of his enemies in chapter 20. So thoughts on that idea? Well, the battle is also referenced in chapter 16. Thank you. Yes, let's go there. The other place, um, I believe it's, is it verse 14? Verse 14. It is verse 14. And so let's just back up to verse 12. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl. This is the bowl judgments coming, the final with God's you know, judgment, his plagues on the earth. Sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who do what? They go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for Don Palamon, the, the, battle. Battle. the battle. Again, the ESV leaves off the definite article here. And again, I love the English Standard Version. It's my favorite translation, but no translation is perfect. Um, and I think it is very significant. Again, three times in Revelation, the battle. It's all referring to the same event. There's not one, the battle, and then a second, the battle. It's the battle, and that's it. And that is actually consistent with the whole... Um, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there is one day, final day coming when Christ returns, the nations are gathered together against him and against his people, um, and it is the battle. 
Um, and well, let me yeah, just pick ahead. up. That's, thank you for bringing us here. So this is the only other time it, it appears. And let's keep reading. So two, uh, this is verse 14 of chapter 16. To assemble them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then again, you look down. Verse 19, Babylon falls. Verse 20, every island fled away. No mountains were found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven. They cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. We argue that, again, all the nations are what? Gathered against God's people. In chapter 16, for the battle. In chapter 19, you have all the kings of the earth gathered against God's people for the battle. Chapter 20, what do you have? Gog and Magog representing all the nations of the earth gathered against God's people for the battle. Now, are we really to believe there are three worldwide battles against the church at three different points in history that are judged by cosmic events that involve the world being unraveled, earth and sky flaying away, and fire coming down from heaven? I don't think it happens more than once. I think this is a singular event from three different perspectives, and it, you can call it Armageddon, which is a symbolic way of portraying God's people in this battle, or chapter 19, uh, it's the battle, and in chapter 20. So that is one, I think, substantial argument to argue that we are hearing repetition here of the mm-hmm. same scene. We can go back to chapter 20, Papa. There's, there's been a lot of discussion, especially in the dispensational group, about Gog and Magog and, and Ezekiel, and, and, and Ezekiel, uh, that term comes from Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Uh, those aren't real. Those aren't real places. I mean, they're they're symbolic of all the nations that are gathered against. Some people want to say they're Russia or they're this or they're China right. or something like that. No, they're just symbolic of opposition to the gospel. Okay, on on this point. Now, this is going to be easy to get lost. So, because we're going to a remote text, you don't you don't have to turn to it right now. But you can look at it later. But uh, in Ezekiel, we we all know Ezekiel thirty six and thirty seven. I'll give you a new heart. I'll cleanse you of all your uncleanness. I'll wash you with clean water. You'll be clean. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. The spirit blows and restores God's people. Those are very familiar to us, which I love. We're not as familiar with the very next two chapters. (laughs) Ezekiel 38 and 39, almost unknown to most Christians. This is Gog and Magog. And you're like, what, huh? Uh, So just real quick, you can go read them later. They're pretty long. We would not have time to go through it right now. But Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes this final cosmic battle against God's people and the nations of the earth. And then chapters 40 to 48, the last chapters of Ezekiel, describe this restoration of Jerusalem and this rebuilding of this temple. The measuring. The measuring of the temple. And then, then Ezekiel ends. Okay, so just stick with me here for a moment, all right? So I, I found this argument to be extremely persuasive for the mm-hmm. amillennial position and I wish I could show you. I don't, I don't, I, I don't have it on the screen today. Uh, but let, let me just give you some samples here. One of the ways, probably the best way, we learn how to interpret the Old Testament is by how the New Testament quotes it and uses it, the New Testament authors, right? They, they shed light on how to interpret rightly the Old Testament. Now, here's what is incredible to me. See if this makes sense. In Revelation 19, Jesus comes back on a white horse, right? With a sword. John borrows language from the Gog and Magog scene of Ezekiel 38 and 39 to describe this worldwide judgment against God's enemies. Everybody with me? Now, here's where I started to go, oh, I didn't know that. That's, that's chapter 19. Chapter 20, he, John, now listen, he again uses language from Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, to describe this other battle scene. What that would, I'm going I'm to give you the details in a second. If, if this is correct, that John is using Gog and Magog for chapter 19's worldwide battle, and for chapter 20, do you see John is using the same battle in the Old Testament to describe two different scenes in Revelation, which are actually the same scene? Do you get that? Now, just, just follow me here as I, as I read connections. In Revelation 19, you can look at verse 17. It's a, a call for the birds to gather for the great supper of God. That comes from Ezekiel 39, 17. Birds and beasts are called to gather for the sacrifice. Now you see the connection, right? In Revelation 19, verse 18, you can look at that. They're going to eat the flesh of, I know this is graphic language. They're going to eat the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses, and their riders. Did you know that came from Ezekiel 39, verses 18 and 20? They will eat the flesh of the mighty, princes, horses, and charioteers. You see, John is pointing back to Ezekiel. The next one, look at Revelation 20, verse 8. You see the name Gog and Magog. That comes from Ezekiel 38, verse 2, Gog and Magog. So John, he's not trying to hide anything here. That's 
clearly, Gog and Magog are only coming from, e- from Ezekiel 38, verse 2. Look at 20, verse 8 in Revelation again. There, it says that the nations are deceived and gathered for battle. In Ezekiel 38, verses 15 to 16, many nations come against Israel. Same picture. In, in 20, verse 8 of Revelation, innumerable army is like the sand of the sea. In Ezekiel, they're like a cloud. In 20, verse 9, the nations go up. In Ezekiel, the, the Gog and his troops go up. In 20, verse 9 in Revelation, the fire comes down from heaven. In Ezekiel 39, verse 6, the fire comes down on Magog. Now, do you see, this is so incredible to me. Ezekiel is describing this final judgment of God's people, Gog and Magog, the nations against Israel, and God judging them with fire. And John uses the word pictures from that scene to describe both the cosmic judgment in chapter 19 and in 20, which I think is a very strong pointer that these two events in 19 and 20 of Revelation are the same events. I think the more you look at this one, the more powerful I think it gets because how John is using that scene in Revelation is I think he's almost showing his hand. I'm describing one event from two different perspectives. Greg? Um, Yeah, and interesting thing too um, is when John quotes from the Old Testament, he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the words that he uses in Revelation are the exact same words that are used in the Greek version of Ezekiel. And so it's not like, oh, similar conceptually. Right. No, I mean, there are the, the gathering together and, and stuff like It's the exact same word, same verb tense, everything um, for this. And so again, John in, in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, like some he draws from 39, some he draws from 38, not in any particular order. Um, and so you can't say, well, this is meant to correlate to what was before. And it's all talking about the same thing at the same time. Well, the, the, you know, this is this again is 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 the illusion we're talking about, a reference. It's not an exact quote, but it's it is quoting Gog and Magog. But it doesn't it doesn't give you the exact verbiage, but it's a reference, and and that's why these are all related. I mean, the, the Old Testament is quoted more in in Revelation than any other place in the Bible, and there's four books: Daniel, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And Psalms, I believe. That's helpful. So yeah. let's, okay, just chat, Revelation 20 again. Let's start back at the beginning and start working through, building on what we've talked about the last two Sundays. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, just pause here. Last week, we learned that, remember, Revelation is highly symbolic. I don't think there's a literal physical key. I don't think there's a literal physical chain. I don't think it would even hold a spirit, right? I don't (laughs) think that, this is symbolic language for the idea of Satan is being limited in some capacity during the millennium. What is the way in which Satan is being limited according to the language? It is not that he's not around. It's that he can no longer do what? Verse 3, deceive the nations any longer until the end of the millennium. So during this thousand years, he is bound. Remember the word bound is the word deo in Greek? It's the same word Jesus used in Matthew and Mark to describe Satan being bound when Jesus dies on the cross. Remember, no one can plunder the strong man's house until he first deo binds the strong man. So Jesus says, right now in my ministry, as I cast out demons and as I'm about to die on the cross, I am going to bind the strong man, Satan, and I'm about to plunder his house, which means I'm about to convert people from all over the world, his home, the earth. I'm going to convert people from all over and bring them into my kingdom. So Jesus taught the binding of Satan when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus taught, so in some sense, Satan was bound right there, which we believe, again, has to do with total deception of the nations to gather them against his people. And that at the end of the millennium, the binding is undone and Satan is able to come back and gather the world against the church in an unforeseen way in the time of Antichrist. Let's keep moving here. Verse 4. We'll get into some new stuff here. 24. 20 verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those who, to whom authority to judge was committed. Just stop there. Greg, do you want to say a word about the thrones being normally in heaven? Yes. Now, this is, this is another compelling thing um, in my mind. Because uh, you'll see the word thrones, plural, in Revelation, and you'll see the word thrones, singular, in Revelation. If, if I understand it right, the plural of thrones, when it's used, only refers to thrones in heaven. 
only used of thrones that are in heaven. And the singular normally refers to thrones in heaven. It can, it can refer to the, the beast having a throne on earth, but yes. it's almost always thrown in the, in the singular also is heavenly, although it can there's a be, few yeah, exceptions. A few exceptions, but in the plural, it's only in heaven. Right. Yes, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, if you want to check and maybe find uh, something that proves that wrong, that's fine. But I'm pretty sure that thrones only refer to thrones in heaven when it's in the plural. Um, and so who is seated on these thrones? Do, um, who are, who's these authority to judge? Uh, we do know that, that Paul rebukes the Corinthians, you know, when they're going to, you know, court against each other. And he's like, you know, why are you doing this? Don't you know that you're going to be judging angels? And so in some way, I believe believers, um, the, some disciples, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on this one. Maybe you got some more light to shed. But, you know, this authority to judge was committed. It doesn't say who they're judging. It just says authority to judge. Um, and so, again, I don't want to go further than the text says, but other places seems to indicate in some capacity, some believers will have this authority even to judge angels, uh, which is a crazy thought. And, and the, the important thing here, and you're right, that is, that is amazing, that the scene here is a heavenly scene yes. rather than an earthly scene, right? So, so let, let's see what happens in the scene. Again, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, just a word here. Again, I don't think this is... Now, hear me out. I don't think this is referring only, literally, to martyred Christians. And you say, wait, it says beheaded. Well, okay, if we're going to take it really literally then it only refers to beheaded martyred Christians, which is a very small group of Christians, right? So Christians have been killed, burned at the stake. They've been crucified upside down. What about the beheaded? I mean, Paul was beheaded. Uh, James was beheaded, a few people. But it's a pretty small group of, of people. So beheaded here is a symbol for those who lived faithfully to Christ until death. They never gave in to the mark of the beast. They never sold their soul to Satan. They stayed faithful to God until death. And so I think it's referring to all faithful Christians with the, with the martyred saints here. And it says here, they came to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Yeah, now this is one of the big issues. Um, and again, when it comes to the, the difference between the position we're arguing for, which is the millennium is going on now, it's a heavenly millennium, uh, versus the premillennial, the historic premillennial view, um, which sees this as an actual physical resurrection that happens when Jesus returns. It's not something that's going on now. It's a future event. They look at uh, verse 4 and um, verse 5, this come to life, this came to life. And they say that that's physical resurrection, like resurrection's physical. Um, and so it has to be referring to a physical resurrection, not a spiritual whatever. You don't spiritualize this. Um, but we have to ask the question, how is it being used? How, what does it mean to come to life? Last week, I made the case that there's an escalation of the experience of people of God. You just follow Revelation. You see it escalating. It just gets better and better and better. In term, and it's all talking about the same time frame, the same, same place. How, as you go deeper into it, yes, from one perspective, how long, O oh Lord, but then in another perspective, they're actually reigning with Christ. So what does this, this come to life mean? Um, because it talks about verse 5, the rest did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. This coming to life, whatever it is, is called the first resurrection. And are we allowed from Scripture to say that resurrection can be spiritual and not physical? Now, what I'm about to say does not mean that there's not a physical resurrection at the end. There is. But the New Testament often takes the, the promises of the age to come, eternal life, new creation, resurrection, and it says in some measure in the church, the believers are already participating in these things, already tasting these future realities. They've broken into the present age right now, and we are already experiencing it. Think about John 3.16. Our favorite evangelistic Bible verse says, if you believe in Jesus, you won't perish but have, you'll have eternal life. Eternal now, life is a present possession for you if you're a believer. From the Old Testament perspective, eternal life was a future thing. When the resurrection comes, when the new creation comes, that's eternal life. And Jesus says, you believe in me, you have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. A new, it's literally, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. 
But I thought that was future, resurrection, all that's in the future. And what the New Testament shows us is that that future age with all those blessings has broken into the present. Now, not in the fullness of it, not in the the full experience that we're going to have when the resurrection happens. And so here's the other thing. The doctrine of the resurrection, we already believe, whether we realize it or not, that the re- we're already participating in that. Why? When we say, like with Ephesians 5, or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, and uh, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he did what? Raised us up with him and seated us where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Um, so I want you to turn to John chapter 5, okay? This is, once you see this, it's really there everywhere, but you got to see it. And it was what interesting here. John chapter 5, same author as Revelation, okay? Sometimes that's important when you're dealing with the same author. You see the same things talked about. And I think what we see in John chapter 5 is the foundation for what we see in Revelation chapter 20, okay? We talk about first resurrection and all of that. How can that be spiritual? Let's let Jesus talk to us um, about, whoop, I'm in Acts, not John. It helps to be in the right book. <laughs> Let's let Jesus give us the clues here as to how we need to think. Um, John chapter 5, let's begin reading just in um, verse 19, because I, w- I want to set this up. So Jesus, um, you know, the Jews are seeking to kill him because, I mean, he clearly was making himself equal with God. And so look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For, and listen to this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, and there's the present possession, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's already starting to get resurrection language. Mm-hmm. Passing from death to life is resurrection, okay? But now it gets, even, it gets even clearer. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Not still coming, here now, now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's talking about right now. If you hear Jesus, you come to life. That's regeneration. That's the new birth that John's already talked about. Um, You know, the Spirit works as He will. Jesus, through the Spirit, calls people out of death into life. Let me just just start there. Just so you know, the the Greek word, I'm just just telling you the Greek word so you know. The word zao, okay, that's the word for life. It's the exact same word from Revelation 20. They came to life. Zao, they came to life. It's the same word in John 5.25. Those who hear will live. That word live is the exact same Greek word as those who came to life. So again, it would fit perfectly Mm -hmm. with the idea that the first resurrection here is the idea of regeneration or spiritual life. Yeah. So let's just keep working through this. uh, Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. And so here's where we can say, first resurrection, spiritual, second resurrection, physical. Okay, look at this. Because Jesus has just said, if you hear his voice, now you come to life. Okay, look at verse um, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is talking about resurrection in two senses. One is spiritual, one is physical. Jesus himself is doing that, and that's, that's why we, we have to be so diligent to subject ourselves to the text. And no matter your position, test your system by exegesis. Test your system by exegesis. The re, one of the reasons why, that one of the most convincing things for me why I'm a millennialist is because of a passage like this. Because... If you think, well, resurrection can only be physical, well, then this, you know, then premillennialism. It has to be. But if resurrection can be spiritual or physical, depending on how it's being used, then it completely opens the door to see in Revelation 20 the same thing Jesus is saying here. The first resurrection are those who were born again, those who come to life for the thousand years. The second resurrection 
everybody participates in, but unbelievers don't participate in the first. That's, that's helpful. So again, John speaks of in Revelation, he speaks of a uh, first resurrection, and then he speaks of the second death, the lake of fire. So, okay, Im- implied, if there's a first resurrection, I- implied is there's also a second resurrection, although he doesn't name that. Mm-hmm. And if there's a second death, it implies that there is a first death, first death. right? So clearly there's got to be those four. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why would he use first and second? So it, he, John has, in his mind, he has first resurrection, second resurrection, and he has first death, second death. Now, the first death happens in this world, doesn't it? The first death happens here. You die physically, and then there's an eternal death, right? When, when you are, if you're not a believer, you're raised to uh, physical life, but you enter into eternal mm-hmm. death, which is the lake of fire. So there's first death in this world. There's second death eternal in the next world, right? Now let's take first and second resurrection. Let's bring those in. The first resurrection takes place where? In this world. When I'm raised, to, I was dead in my sins and God made me alive together with Christ. That's my first, res- my soul is resurrected. Then when is the second resurrection? It's in the future. It's bodily resurrection for eternity. And do you see how he's not talking about Two times in history in which people are raised bodily from the dead. This is the way premillennial people mm-hmm. take it, and I understand why they do, and I sympathize with it. I just don't think it's right, but it could be. But they take it as people are raised, uh, some people are raised at the beginning of the millennium, and some people are raised at the end of the millennium. There's two resurrections, the first and the second. But I think matching with first and second death, the one happens in this world, the here and now. You either come to life or you die here. And then there's the, there's the eternal state of the second death or the second resurrection. Yeah, and so again, just, you know, John is going to be John's best interpreter. And John in chapter 5 here, I think, clearly says that there is a coming to life that's not a physical coming, but a spiritual coming to life. And an inner spiritual renewal, again, that we call regeneration, we call the new birth. Um, And then there's a final coming to life. And at that day, you will either receive the fullness of life, eternal life, Uh, new heavens, new earth, or you will go into judgment. You know, he actually says that in in verse 29 uh, of 5, and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And that fits perfectly with the amillennial chart, too. Yeah, they they happen also simultaneously. That's right. And there's not two resurrections. Right, that all the resurrections occur at the same moment in time from this position. Let, let me show you one more text. Tur- turn to Luke chapter 20 to your left. Luke chapter 20. It's almost a repetition of what Greg is saying there, but I want to show it from another spot. Slightly different nuance, but re- uh, Luke 20. Do you remember when Jesus is asked by the Sadducees about resurrection? Because they don't believe in resurrection, the Sadducees. Uh, I won't say the joke right now about that, but uh, you know the they're joke. Sad, so. Yeah, they're sad. So uh, <laughs> look at chapter 20, and uh, this is when Jesus defends resurrection from the, from the, from the, from the book of Exodus. Look at, um, look at Luke 20, verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. So now we've got the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now do you see there? Jesus is saying, right now as I speak, this is back in 30 AD, as I speak, God is not that God was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now they're dead and gone. No, God is currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That can only be true if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in some sense alive right now. And so that word for living, uh, they are not dead but living, is the same Greek word from Revelation 20. They came to life and reigned, the, the, the zoe, the zeo word. So they came to life and reigned. Well, here Jesus is saying the intermediate state, the state of heavenly reign of believers right now in glory, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus says right now they're alive. And he uses the same word to describe the martyred saints coming to life and reigning in heaven for a thousand years. So I think, again, same Greek words matching up, and I think the sense is the same. We're referring to life in the intermediate state of of heavenly existence before the, the new creation. Let's turn back to Revelation chapter 20. Now, just, just to get the flow, to see where we're getting, I'm just going to reread part of it here. Look, look with me again at uh, verse 3. It's talking about Satan. They threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
Then I saw thrones, so we're thinking heavenly setting, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. This is the intermediate state, the heavenly reign, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That is the church age between Christ's first and second coming. We are arguing. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Comments on that? Wow. Over the second, the second death is the lake of fire. Yes. The lake of fire. So, and that's in, in 20, the death in Hades were thrown into the lake of fire in, in uh, 2014. Uh, so that is the, uh, the, where the dragon is, that's where the beast and the false prophet are, as well as unbelievers. And that happens at the judgment. That happens when Christ comes back. I mean, there's not a lot of moving parts to this. He comes back. Uh, if you're alive, then you go to heaven. If you're in heaven and a first resurrected saint, then you get your, your resurrected body. And if you're lost, an unbeliever, you go to the lake of fire. Okay, yeah. we're, we're, coming, we're coming close to the end of time for today. Not for all of history. That will come later. But uh, <laughs> that hopefully. But, uh, but, uh, There's a lot of ends of history. <laughs> there are a lot of oh, ends man. of history. Next, next week, uh, there's a whole segment of arguments we have not hardly touched yet, which is this. I'll just give you a sense of where we're going. So we want to talk about post-millennialism next week, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll talk about why we don't believe it's correct, uh, although a lot of people have believed that it's in the Puritan era. Um, the big thing that we haven't gotten to a lot is there's a whole bunch of texts, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 2, uh, Ezekiel 40 to 48. These are these well-known disputed texts that are about Premillennial people argue that those texts find their fulfillment in the millennium, not in the eternal state. And so if that sounds confusing, what we're going to try to look at is a number, a smattering of Old Testament prophecies, and we're going to argue that the best way to understand these texts is pointing to the new heavens and new earth, not to the millennium. And if that doesn't make sense, next week we'll, tr- we'll try to unpack what that, uh, what that all is about. But any closing remarks here? Any practical takeaways for us in terms of like, th- this is, it's a big debate, but kind of so what? What does this have to do with, with my uh, daily existence? Again, I, I mentioned this before, but um, the quote, and I don't like that word, intermediate state. Uh, remember when we first introduced that term uh, with Grudem, and, and that, but that word's been around a long time. And that, the, during the uh, Middle Ages, uh, you know, the Catholic Church flirted with that term and felt like, okay, we've got to do something with it. Once, once a person dies, they're in the ground, their soul's someplace, so we gotta we gotta purify that soul. So they conjured up the doctrine of purgatory and indulgences and prayers for the dead, all to deal with that state. Here we know that that, that quote intermediate state. If you're a believer, you're with Christ. You're in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's good news. No, yeah, exactly right. If if what we're arguing is correct, I know that's that's going to take some thinking. Don't just swallow whatever is said. Think through it. Study your scripture and see if you think this is correct. But if what we're arguing is correct, then when Paul says to depart and be with Christ is far better, and when he says to be absent from the body and and and, and home with the Lord is better, then this reigning with Christ for the thousand years is that better that he's referring to. It's being in the immediate presence of Christ without any sickness, pain, or death. No temptation will be there. We will have full joy. We will have full access to God. In that moment, and we will be awaiting the final consummation where God makes all wrongs right. He ushers in the eternal state where we will reign with Christ in a new earth with glorified physical bodies, uh, with Christ in, in a glorified physical presence, and uh, we will see his face. We will be with him, and uh, th- that is all what we are looking forward to. But I think it's good to know something of this, in, like you're saying, the intermediate state, the in-between period. But what happens to Christians who die now? And the answer is we, we reign with Christ during this time. Greg, closing thoughts? Um, I was going to read Paul's expectation. You mentioned Philippians. Yeah. This is Second Timothy chapter four. You know he's t- telling Timothy, you know how he was opposed. No one came to his defense the first time. And in verse seventeen, again, anticipating his death is going to be soon. This is how Paul talks. He says, "But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth." Verse eighteen. 
The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Mm. Amen. That's a good perspective to adopt. When you think about death, God is in in very uh, real terms rescuing you. Like we, we don't look forward to death. I mean, you know, I think it's the process of dying that we, we don't look forward to more than death itself. Um, but it's like, you know, we, we, we think of death, I think, in the wrong way. Paul is saying, listen, my head's about to be chopped off, but God's going to rescue me through that. And he's going to deliver me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And so however it is we leave this earth before Jesus returns, we are being rescued by God and delivered safely into his heavenly kingdom kingdom a kingdom again a heavenly kingdom it's a kingdom that's now um in heaven that we get to go participate in and reign with christ when we die yeah so let's pray god thank you so much uh for the hope that we have right now uh that through faith in jesus we have eternal life we are new creations we have been raised to new life we are already beginning to experience the reality of the age to come of the resurrection and all these promised blessings, we are experiencing them now. But we know that the the fullness of that is yet to come. And God, that when we die, it's a further escalation. God, that, that we will shed this sinful body and our spirits will go into the presence of our Savior where we will not know sin anymore, but we will be in your presence, beholding your face. And yet even that is not the end. God, we know beyond that, At the physical resurrection, when our bodies are raised, we will be with you forever the way you designed us to be, body and soul. Um, And Lord, what an experience that's going to be. It is beyond our imagination and our ability to fully fathom, God, how great that is going to be, to behold you, not just spiritually, but physically, both. Um, And Lord, I pray that we would long for that day that we'd say, as Paul did in Second Timothy, that, that you're going to deliver us safely into your heavenly kingdom. And as he wrote to Titus, that the coming of Jesus and the resurrection is our blessed hope. Uh, Lord, may that shape us and mold us um, and, and just direct all that we think and all that we do. God, because that is reality that's coming for us. And I pray, Lord, that it would consume us more and more um, and that our lives would be uh, more and more lived in light of it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.